Greetings to all of you listening to this message. My name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that are new, I just briefly want to mention how I am about to share. It says in 1 Peter 4.12, I believe, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And that is what I will seek to do in this message, to allow the Spirit of God to minister to you out of me by being in a consciousness of worship that allows the Spirit of God to rise up in me and come forth to bring life to your inner being. And so this message is basically a message that is prophetic, that seeks to speak what God by his Spirit would be saying to you as an individual and to the corporate body of Christ around the world for this particular time and hour. One of the things I do during each week is I cast lots almost every day on the scripture to find a particular chapter where there's an equal chance for any particular chapter to come forth. I then meditate upon that chapter and make notes. Usually this takes a half an hour or less. And so I want to share with you God's leading in the Word of God this week through the casting of lots as it says in Proverbs the casting of the lot and the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord now this works when you're walking in the light as he is in the light when you're walking in holiness if you do it as a game or if you do it with sin in your life it could be the practice of divination which of course would be totally an abomination before God. But I know that what I have received here this week is what God is seeking to say to the body of Christ. And so I will begin to share the various passages I received this week and then hone in on a particular chapter as the Holy Spirit leads. I don't prepare these messages except that I have brief notes that I have taken on those particular chapters that I've been meditating on it on this last week. So beginning on Sunday, I received 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now I'm not going to be reading these chapters, but I do want to basically read the paragraphs, which are brief commentaries on the chapter. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verses 1 to 9, I said this, the last days will have perilous times because of the evil of individuals who will be lovers of their own selves and of pleasure more than God. They will make themselves appear godly, but deny the power of God to live a godly life. The time will come when God will expose the evil of these that are wicked and bring his judgment upon them. Then in verses 10 to 17, those that live godly will suffer persecution because it will expose the deception and the evil of seducers and evil people about them. We are to continue in prayerful meditation and study in the word of God to receive teachings and reproofs that correct our ways and that makes us wise to have deliverance through faith in Jesus Christ from all things. On February the 1st, on Monday, I received Psalm 37. And the particular verse that stood out in this psalm to me was Psalms 37.4, which says, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. And I did make some brief notes on this chapter, only on the first six verses, in which I believe this particular verse is in verse 4. Do not express an eating discontent towards yourself because of the prosperity of evildoers. 
but rather gather the focus of your soul in a soft, pliable delight in knowing, in a knowing of the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. With this, roll the course of your priorities in life and your choices onto the Lord. With complete trust in the Lord, and the Lord will bring your prosperity of soul and physical blessing to come to pass so that your righteousness shines like a bright light in the world. Now, the particular word in this chapter, Psalms 37, which is basically about being thankful and not fretting over the prosperity of the ungodly around us. That word delight, I looked it up in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew Strong's, it says it means to be soft or pliable, figuratively speaking, to be effeminate or luxurious. But when you go to the symbolic letters, which give even a far greater meaning to the word, what are the symbolic letters of this word delight? The first is a symbol picture of the eye. These are the Hebrew letters that were used from 1500 BC and earlier, going way back to before 2000 BC and so on, and were used by most of the other nations as well at that time. So the first letter is the symbol of an eye. The next letter is the symbol of a sprouting seed. And the last letter is the symbol of a foot, but it's it's kind of like, yeah, just a basically a foot. Now, I know what all of these letters mean, as I have been learning Hebrew and studying this particular aspect as well. The first letter means to watch, but more so to know. It also means to shade. In other words, to give relief from brightness. So it's a knowing. It's a knowing of someone where there's a place of comfort like there is in shade. It's a knowing. It's a seeing of the heart. So it is a seeing that involves knowing. And the next letter is the sprout. And the basic meaning of this letter is continuance. It also means son and it means inheritance. It has the understanding that there is continuance of the family. So in other words, there needs to be a knowing of the Lord that doesn't stop, but is a continual reciprocation of our heart in knowing God. And then the last letter, the letter of, which is the symbol of the foot, means to gather to walk and to carry. Basically, it means that. And it has a lot more in all of these letters, but this is the basic meaning of these symbol letters. So in other words, what this word delight is saying is that we should gather or focus our heart, the decision center of our soul, which is our heart, on the Lord. We should focus on knowing him and continue in it. So this word delight has the understanding of being soft and pliable in the sense that when we focus on the Lord, there is a reciprocative relationship because you don't know someone unless you are receiving of who they are in the very inner part of your being. And so we choose to be open to the Lord and who he is in his holiness, recognizing that his holiness is so pure that we, the integrity of his love is so pure that he will not tolerate the slightest that is contrary to his love, but will judge it as a blazing fire of judgment. We delight in the holiness of God because his love will not tolerate corruption. That which is contrary to love contains corruption. And God is wanting us 
to be open to his holiness, not offended at the consequences of judgment because of his holiness, which we see around us in the suffering of our own lives, where we've made wrong decisions, where we see around us the suffering of others because they are in rebellion against God and all the reverberations of this effect. Rather, we are to delight in the holiness of God. That is what makes God ultimately trustworthy. That is the foundation for wholeness. For only where there is no corruption can there be total wholeness. And out of wholeness comes beauty. God is the very source of beauty. It says to worship God in the beauty of of holiness. It is out of holiness that issues beauty, and out of holiness issues wholeness, which obviously contains beauty. And so when we are reciprocative to who God is, and we continue in it by making choices to gather all of the scattering of our concerns and our thoughts of this life, to gather to, take, to, to turn away from that and gather our focus away from that into who God is, in his love, in his being, and be an utter awe of him. There is a pliableness because in any love relationship, there is that soft pliableness, which is what this is word delight in the English is meaning. The deeper meaning of delight is that one is soft and pliable, receptive to who God is, to the winds of his spirit, to bend to his will, out of the awareness of who he is, out of the delight of who he is in such pure love that could be transcendent in such great mercy to us that he could actually have forgiven us and cleansed us and washed us and made us whole. So the delight is not only in the holiness of God, but in what springs out of the foundation of that holiness, which is creativity without corruption, that is ultimately manifested and that God could actually take judgment upon himself and absorb it totally through the outpoured blood of his life on the cross in Jesus Christ. So that you could receive forgiveness of sins. And that was recognized to be in the being of God from the beginning of time. That he is holy and that he, in his holiness, without violating the integrity of this love that requires judgment against all that is contrary to love, could actually have such a high moral capacity of love that it would be ultimate in the fact that he would be able to have the power to forgive us by himself being a perfect atoning sacrifice. That that was in his being before the world was created is evident in the fact that it says in the book of Revelation, chapter 18 and in other places in the word of God, that Jesus Christ was slain before the foundation of the world, before the world was created. It was in the being of God, not merely a capacity, but a reality. And when we begin to delight in the holiness of God and in the mercy of God, from which springs forth the favor of God, as it is described in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the word mercy includes the understanding of favor as well, or grace. And so that is the understanding. And when we do that, will we, as it says in the Psalm 37, be fretting over the fact that we don't have a lot and those that are ungodly around us seem to have good health if we don't have the best of health and they have all this wealth and being at ease. Well, the word of God is clear. As I said in that concluding paragraph of this chapter of the first six verses, we are to not allow it to in us what would eat our soul in discontent because of these things that get to us. Rather, we are to delight in the Lord with the understanding 
of what that word fully means as I have given you in this message. And to roll the course of our priorities in life and our choices onto God. So we take our hands off and we don't start saying, God, I want this, I want that. Or we want to go in our own presumptuous way and we don't even ask God. The psalmist said, Lord, deliver me from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be innocent from the great transgression. The solution is very clear. We are to learn to continually be in a love relationship with God, not only in our times of prayer, but continually thanking him and praising him throughout the day out of, de out of this heart relationship of delight. It is important that our heart is pure, that we worship God not only in spirit but in truth, and not only have a mental assent to truth, but that we have a deep turning in our hearts so that our spirit is released in worship out of truth. Truth always brings us to the place of recognizing the holiness of God so that we are honest with ourselves in his sight. And when we're really honest with ourselves in the awareness of whose presence we are in, we cannot help but be humbled before the presence of God. And it is out of humility that comes the reciprocation of the grace of God, as it says, God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. The fear of God is basically the choice in our heart that involves a deep turning of our heart to recognize God for who in reality he is. And he is love. A love that is so pure that it will not tolerate sin and is so creative out of that purity that it is manifested in the, in the fact that God has the power to forgive us sin, all of our sins when we repent because he actually became a perfect atoning sacrifice in the full expression of himself into this world in Jesus Christ, the one and only full expression of himself, the one and only Son of God. Son means basically expression. The full expression of the fathers, it says in Hebrews 1.4, that Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father. So that's what I received on February the 1st, Psalms 37. And then the next passage I received was 2 Corinthians 13, which again is a passage that will expand upon the secret of being in an intimate relationship with God, or Elohim, the Almighty's One, that is the Father that transcends time and space and government and sees the end from the beginning and is the originator of all things. And the Son, which is the full expression of the Father, ruling in governance in the time and space realm, and the Holy Spirit filling all things and being able to be creative in all places at the same time and manifest the personage of the Son in all places at the same time and of the Father. And so in this passage here, we will see, I believe this will be the one that will be our theme passage. That is 2 Corinthians chapter 13. So I will read this passage of scripture, but before I do that and get into that chapter, let us just touch on the other passages to see what God has been saying for this week. So after that, the next day on Thursday, I received Proverbs chapter 1. There was a day or some I missed here, I believe. There was things that I had to do in helping people that were in real need this week. So Proverbs chapter 1. <clears throat> in this passage, I just make some brief notes about what I observe about this chapter. The deception of things evolving to destroy the righteous and innocent who fear God. 
comes about by a counterfeit love that believes and seeks to share all things in common. The deception of this is plain in the belief in communism, where wealth is taken unjustly from others to give to those who are poor because of their own laziness and unrighteous ways. That doesn't negate the fact that the righteous and those that love God are the ones that give to the poor more than anyone. In fact, the United States gives more to the poor than any other nation in the world and helps more than other because there are many believers in that nation. But now we see an election where there's a strong emphasis on socialism. Really, which is basically if not communism, very close to it. And we see that the fruit of socialism has always been oppression, oppressive dictatorship, and multitudes being killed. I don't have the statistics before me, but I believe Mao killed, what was it, possibly 50 or 70 million, if I remember right. Stalin killed millions, maybe 20 million. Look, it's happened in Argentina recently under socialism. The whole country has become bankrupt. It's become a total mess. People don't have money, hardly have anything. So the result of covetousness is two things. It is oppression and it is poverty. Oppression and poverty in the guise of so-called love where everyone shares in common. And so in this book, in Proverbs, we see that this is the case. I should say not Proverbs. My, yes, it is. It's Proverbs chapter 1. And so there are some verses that I have put out here that I want you to consider in relation to this. Verses 10 to 19 in Proverbs said, says, My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. If they say, Come with us, let us lay wait for blood. Let us lurk privately for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them up alive as the grave and whole as those that go down into the pit. We shall find all precious substance. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in thy lot among us. Let us all have one purse. That's the key right there. That's the deception. Oh, we just want everyone to have money. We just want everyone to be satisfied and not have lack. So we want to love one another and have one purse. It's true that the early church shared all things in common and that it should be that in the body of Christ, there is that reality that is practiced where there is none in the local assembly that is left without need, their needs being met because of the love we have one for another that allows us to share beyond our tithe and give to those that are in need. But this is done out of free volition, not out of a dictatorship that forces people to give to those that in most cases feel like the world owes them a living and refuse to be accountable and self-responsible in work. And so we have the tendency for when, whenever there is a people that is selfish, that is covetous, that is unthankful, as it says in Psalms 37, that frets at those that have more than them. It eats their soul and allows them to be motivated and manipulated by the bait of covetousness for the things of this life. And that allows powerful leaders that vent their anger to be in a position to cause a dictatorship to form that oppresses the multitudes and robs them of any wealth. So that is the fruit also of what happens to us in our individual lives when we lose out on our relationship with God and we begin to focus on just ourselves and fret and allow our soul to be taken over by the love for this world. 
In the last days, the evidence of those that are truly born of the Spirit will be whether they will sell their souls to the loves of this world or be willing to let it all go. Because the beast, the Antichrist system, will require a mark of some kind that identifies those that would be willing to sell their soul out to integrity, to truth, to a right relationship with God, to that evil ruler that is anti-God. And so it says that if anyone does not receive the mark of the beast, which requires them also to worship the beast, then they cannot buy or sell or have any, any of the things in the world economy. God is calling forth his bride to come forth, to be in such a relationship with him that they will not be moved by the loves of this world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. In this passage of Scripture, we see the message that God is clearly calling his people to. He is calling them to come out. It says in Revelations 18.4, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. That is speaking of a world system that has become corrupt to the point that they are flaunting blasphemy in the face of God with sexual perversion and many other things. I could preach a message on that. But in this passage, I want to go back to the theme chapter, which I have not read yet, which will be 2 Corinthians chapter 13. So I'm going to have to turn, since you haven't done it yet, to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. So I will turn now to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And we will read in the King James Version. This is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. I told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time. And being absent now I write to them which hitherto have sinned and to all other that if I come again I will not spare. Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me which to you word is not weak but is mighty in you. For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves? how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? But I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. Now I pray to God that ye do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that ye should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and ye are strong and this also we wish even your perfection therefore I write these things being absent lest being present I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction finally brethren farewell be perfect be of good comfort be of one mind live in peace and the God of love and peace shall be with you Greet one another with an holy kiss. All the saints salute you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost 
be with you all. Amen. In this passage of scripture, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, I'm going to begin by just bringing out the verse in verses 5 to 6, which says, Examine yourselves whether ye be in the, in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. But I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. God is clearly giving a message to the body of Christ that we are to search our hearts before God to see whether we are in the truth, in that relationship where we're delighting in the Lord or whether there's a gradual eating away in our soul, a gradual hardening of our soul. We are to be those that as the word of God says, exhort one another daily, as it is called today, lest any man be hardened through what? The deceitfulness of sin. Hardening. We are protected to a great degree from hardening by our, by our gathering it together around Jesus Christ on an ongoing basis so that we can provoke one another in a direction that undoes those things. But it also involves our own personal relationship where we are seeking God each day in prayer and in the word of God. Now in the first section, verses 1 to 6 in this chapter, I have made this summation of these verses. We abide in Christ by being weak in our own self-sufficiency that we acknowledge and bring before God. When we are abiding in Elohim, that is the Almighty's one, we are weak in ourselves because we do not put confidence in ourselves but in the power of God and Christ. Christ abides in us by genuine moral persuasion in Christ, which is only possible as we are not in self-initiated independence from God, independent from God choices, thoughts and deeds. So if we are self-initiating our own life with independent choices, thoughts, and deeds from God, we are in a place of our own self-confidence, which is contrary to God. For the word of God says that we are the circumcision which have no confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and truth and have no confidence in the flesh. We are to examine if we have this genuine moral persuasion in Christ rather than in self. Because if we do not, then we are worthless to God and our purpose for being created is also undone and we are rejected by him. A reprobate is what? Well, we can look up the meaning of this word. It means unapproved. It means rejected. It secondly, by implication, means worthless according to the Strong's. So God does not want us to become a branch that is withered and is good for nothing but to be cast into the fire and burn. He commands us to abide in him and to let his words abide in us that we would be fruitful in knowing who he is. It is out of a relationship, not of doing performance, out of a relationship of reciprocative interaction with the being of God in prayer, in waiting on God, in worshiping God, in spirit and in truth, and with songs, in meditating in his word, out of delight, that we grow in our inner being and become strong, not in ourselves, but in God. In ourselves, we must learn the secret of being weak in him. The secret of abiding in God always involves 
being not not being weak being weak in ourselves and bringing that weakness to God now what births that abiding state of being it is the genuine fear of God which is the message that God has given me to speak to the churches around the world to fear God and to give glory to him and to worship him who's made heaven and earth and the seas as it says in Revelations chapter 14. It is also true that in the passage we saw when I was talking about communism there is a theme verse in Proverbs chapter 1 that says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now it's interesting that in the um, Septuagint version it, it, it is a bit different. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom instead of knowledge and there is good understanding to all that practice it. And piety toward God is the beginning of discernment. I don't know why there's a big difference there but this is from original manuscripts that go further back with the uh, different letters that are before the Assyrian letters which are what are used now in the Hebrew letters. But here's the thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, which is the knowing of God, that includes wisdom, really. For it's only when we have that reciprocative relationship that there can be that knowledge. And as I explained earlier, the fear of God is a choice that involves the deep turning of our heart. It's not an intellectual ascent. It's far more a deep turning from the heart to choose to be, to finally recognize God for who he truly is and, and is, is, and in particular, who he truly can be to us. And the fact that he is able to show us the mercy of God. If we do not see first the holiness of God, which is a choice to recognize the reality that whoever would be ultimately powerful and all-knowing would have to have an integrity that would judge the slightest corruption, a, an integrity of love that requires total judgment upon all corruption. Only that can be who could contain ultimate power. Anything less would have a principle of destruction of corruption in them that could not hold ultimate everlasting unlimited power and life and so there's a choice to recognize what is really real God that this is the source the life source of the universe can only be in a God that is ultimately holy and that is so holy that out of that springs such an incredible ultimate love that it could condescend and suffer more than you, a mere creature, in his full expression of himself into creation, in his one and only Son, suffer more than you, a mere creature, humble himself more than you, a mere creature, and absorb all of the sins of the world that would choose to repent and receive his mercy upon himself. That is something beyond comprehension. And when we really see how great the holiness of God is and our need of his mercy in the light of that, we cannot help but cry out for the mercy of God and therein recognize the greatness of his love towards us in that we receive that mercy. The deception of self-righteousness is a deception of self-worship that God never intended for anyone to choose. God did not make the law for the purpose of showing us that we can't keep it. That would be unrighteous. There is the potential in all of us to make the right choices to keep and obey God. But that is not within our own sufficiency. 
It was never intended from the beginning to be so. God always intended that we should choose to recognize who he is first and be totally reciprocative of his being so that we are in such a fear of God that we are in total awe of him. It is this total awe in our relationship with God that causes a dependence upon God that breaks all self-sufficiency, all self-confidence. So that in other words, we are weak, we bring our weakness to him. We bring our awareness of our need of him because we recognize he's holy. In that we are recognizing the greatness of our need for his mercy and of the greatness of his love. And so there's the birthing of genuine faith, which is a faith that is fully persuaded in the ultimate trustworthiness of God instead of any sufficiency in ourselves. That all comes out of the fear of God, which is the choice to rightly recognize God from our heart for who he truly is. In his love that is manifested first, as it were, negatively in the holiness of God and out of which springs the plus symbol, springing out of the foundation symbol, which is the negative symbol, and also the cutoff symbol, which is the negative symbol cutting off all corruption, springs forth the ultimate plus, the ultimate positive, the love of God that has integrity and yet can assure destiny to creation that chooses to repent and receive his forgiveness. And I don't want to get sidetracked into the details of how that was even in the angels in a different way. And even is in the union of the triunity of God. For it says in Isaiah, now I've forgotten the particular chapter. Um, I believe it's, oh, it might be 56 if I remember right, around verse 13. It says, concerning the Messiah, the fear of the Lord is his treasure because he treasures the fear of the Lord because it is the secret to an abiding relationship with God. It is the very secret of the oneness of God. And there isn't three gods. There's only one God. In governance, in, three, in the three ultimate dimensions, which is beyond time and space, in time and space, and filling all space. The Father, beyond time and space. The Son, in time and space. And the Holy Spirit, filling all space. And so, here we have dependency coming out of the fear of God. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowing God. It is the birthing, the birthing of genuine faith comes out of the fear of God, which is the birthing of being born again of the Spirit. As it says in 1 John, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And then it says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Because when our soul and our spirit comes to the place of utterly recognizing who God is, it knows that it can no longer worship self. It knows how wrong self is, so that it cries out like the publican that smote his breast that Christ talked about, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so the pride, the shell of pride is broken open. The hand, the fist of rebellion is broken open. And the hand of surrender opens up to the mercy of who God is, the love of God, the grace of God, and cries out and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And therein comes the Spirit of God to dwell in a new nature, like another hand coming against the open hand so that the open hand of our soul cannot close because it is now in a new nature. It is held there in that new nature by the impartation of the dwelling of the Spirit of God with our spirit through our repentance that has allowed forgiveness and cleansing. Before Christ, this was also true that they were all born again from the beginning in the recognition of these two aspects of God, of his mercy and of his grace. The only difference is that now there is the indwelling of the Spirit because our soul and spirit could be cleansed and before there was the dwelling with. As it says, for ye know him, for he dwells with you 
and shall be in you. That was Christ speaking before he died on the cross. So they came to know the Father, and it's Christ himself said that whoever has been taught and learned of the Father comes to me. Because you see, when people in the Old Testament recognize the reality of who God was in his holiness, or is in his holiness, and the greatness of his mercy to them, that is the expression of God to, to them personally, which is what? Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father, as it says in Hebrews 1.4. The Son means expression. And so they had the revelation of Jesus Christ from the beginning of time. Not in its fullness as we do now, but they did experience rebirth. And it says that as we receive Jesus Christ, so we are to walk in him. So it's an ongoing process as this word delight reveals a reciprocated delight of dependency. It is a relationship of great humility and thankfulness before God out of the recognition of the greatness of his love and mercy to us, which springs out of the recognition of the holiness of God that is without rebellion towards the consequences, but rather the opposite, conviction of sin in the light of his holiness. And this is an ongoing process after we receive Christ. So that is, so we're going back now to our theme passage, which is 2 Corinthians 13. This is what Paul the Apostle is bringing forth here. Is the secret of a real relationship with God that protects us from entering into a place where we become reprobate and rejected by God because we are like a vine that is withered and is cast forth because it isn't bearing fruit, because we've gone our own presumptuous ways. We're filled with self-initiation of our own ways. We haven't come to the place of learning to wait on God until there's an intertwining deep relationship of union with him. That's what the word wait means. It means to pull back our own self-initiations, our own presumptuousness before God out of the fear of God. As it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1, Be not presumptuous to utter anything in haste before God, for God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. So we curb back our own ways, our own presumptions. We become still to know he is God till that humility is birthed in us. That weakness, that softness, that tenderness that is so receptive to God's love to us and his mercy and his patience to us and his loving kindness to us that's better than life itself. When we know a relationship with God, but we can say with the psalmist, thy loving kindness is better than life. It is the very source of life, God's love. It is the ultimate positive, negative and positive, as it were, of the universe that releases the flow of life, the flow in the natural illustration of electricity. And God is calling us as his people to know that secret abiding. It involves being aware negatively of our emptiness, of our unworthiness apart from the mercy of God, positively of the greatness of his love and that we are received of him and accepted of him because we received his mercy. It breaks the confidence in the flesh so that our soul can no longer worship our spirit. It breaks every tendency towards hardness if we learn to receive Christ as we did in the beginning on an ongoing basis. The next section is verses 11 to 14. And I read, and this is what I said in, the, in this, pardon me, not 11 to 14, 7 to 11. The practice of sin and evil comes out of pride and self-initiated presumptions that even justifies these things by seeking to accuse and to attach those that are abiding in the reality of Elohim as being reprobate. 
So people will actually, did you notice that people that are living in deception and want to justify their deception, you can see it even in the political elections, they will try to attach to those that are walking in the truth the very opposite of who they are. And they'll accuse them of being, in this case, there was those that may have been accusing the apostle of being reprobate. And doing it because it was veiling them and hiding them from the deception of their own lives. So often what the enemy does to hold back the truth so that people will not come to the truth as he seeks to attach to the very ones that are the bearers and emissaries of truth, the opposite, that they are false, that they are reprobates in this case. Those that are abiding in truth in Elohim rejoice when others appear strong and they appear weak because genuine love is the same as God's love. It has total reverence for others because it has come into a total reverence towards God out of a genuine fear of God. A reverence that is filled with thankfulness and humility. And when we really have that in our relationship with God, it is manifested in a relationship with one another so that we actually don't have any desire for people to look up to us if we're really abiding in that secret, delightful relationship with God, we love to be hidden because it's when we're hidden. It's when we are even made to appear fools that we know that we can have a relationship with God that is not going to be distracted or tend to be dissipated from man seeking to put us on a pedestal. So we delight to be in the hidden place. We delight in only one thing, the glory of God. It is our very food. It is our very life. For it is in the meditation which involves the reciprocation of the being of God. That is the meditation of the word of God that we are changed from glory to glory as it says in 2 Corinthians towards the last part of chapter 3. That we all as open face beholding uh, as in a mirror the glory of God are changed from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of God. And then it goes on to say whenever the heart shall turn to the Lord the veil shall be taken away. That is what it means in the original Greek. In the King James it says whenever it it's speaking of the heart shall turn to the Lord and the veil is taken from our heart and we receive the revelation of the glory of who God is in our heart. And it's not an outward visible vision. It's an inward knowing and delight. It is an inward seeing. When Christ said, except a man be born again, he cannot see. It means perceive. It is the seeing of the heart. Perceive the kingdom of God. So God is calling us as his people to be those that know the secret of abiding. Out of abiding in Elohim through being weak in self-sufficiency apart from Elohim comes great power and authority to speak words that bring judgment on those justifying self-righteousness to hide the sinful condition and deeds of their heart. May we know the power of God that comes through weakness. For it is when we are weak that we are strong, the Apostle Paul said, in the sense that our abiding relationship with God is birthed in great humility out of a reciprocative delight in who God is. And I explained what that word delight means, to be pliable, certainly to bend, towards the leading of the Holy Spirit, which leads us in the paths of humility, not the paths that would cause us to be looked up to by people. That's why the great revival, such as the one in the Welsh revival, Robert Evans, even Azusa Street, they did not want to be known or seen. They were in brokenness before God, the leaders. 
as a body. Now I'm going to the third section here, verses 11 to 14. As a body, we are to be perfect in good comfort and of one mind. Then God's love and peace will be in our midst and in us, and we will experience Elohim's grace through Christ and love through the Father and deep communion through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the personage of the third personage of the one true God, an omnipresent activity that is creative to bring forth miracles and healings. If we want to see, brothers and sisters, the power and the glory of God in the midst of the body of Christ, we need to be those that are in a place of great unity individually with Elohim and corporately with Elohim that allows Christ to come down and fully inhabit us as the head because we are in total oneness with the Father that allows a genuine oneness with one another. Whereas it were, we can go to one another and wash one another's feet in humility and esteem one another better than ourselves. And when someone has offended us way worse than we have in any, and we may not have even offended them, or if we have done, we come to them and we say, we wash their feet and we say, brother, sister, I just want to bow before you and tell you how much I appreciate you and love you. And when we do that, brothers and sisters, the hardness will break in them. And any hardness in our own heart will break. And there will be a genuine unity that will allow the fullness of the headship of Christ to come down. I am coming out with a book very shortly that is an outline in detail of what should be in the body of Christ. In fact, you can plan a church because it's a template for planning a church. It's also a template that if you're in a dominant denomination, you can repent of being a denomination. And you can come to the place of reordering things that allow the fullness of the headship of Christ to inhabit the body and restore God's house to being a house of prayer again as well. And so I'm coming out with this template outline. I'm just doing the introduction now and the preface to the book, and then I'm going to have to figure a way of, through my software, getting it properly done. That'll take a bit of time to learn that. But it's coming out, and it's not something I'm doing lightly. I'm moved by God to do this because I have a zeal and a desire to see the glory of God fill all the earth. As the word of God says in Isaiah, as I live, says the Lord, truly as I live, says the Lord, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. And there's another verse that says this, that his praise will spring in the last days up throughout all the earth as the buds spring from a garden, springing from every nation. What will there be? There will be those that are becoming the bride of Christ and have become the bride of Christ. Local assemblies that are open to the full counsel of God, that no longer limit the headship of Christ, that no longer tolerate division and denominationalism, and are totally filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit and of God's glory. That is what God is bringing in the last days, not powerful revivals that come and dissipate with time because man has got in the way, but the government that allows a headship that doesn't allow hierarchy of man to form in the spirit of control to limit the fullness of God's purpose and glory. That is what God is calling us as his people to do in these last days, is to rise up to the occasion to pay the price to be those that stand in the gap, that are repairers of the breach, that are restorers of the paths to dwell in. And then his glory will come. And do you know that in Isaiah 24, there's a verse there, and Isaiah 24 is about that massive earthquake that happens, which is the seventh seal in Revelations when the kingdom of God returns. What do you see? 
described in the midst of all the cities being judged by God, Babylon being burned by God, being shaken by this mighty earthquake. I believe it's the Babylon rebuilt by the Antichrist because it seems very clear in Revelations that there's two Babylons. First, there's the world system as it is now with democracies that have become corrupt and filled with blasphemies that is judged by fire by those nations that have an intent to do that and that God allows. And then there's another Babylon that's destroyed by the earthquake where the city is split in three parts. And that seems to be being described in Isaiah 24. And it says in the midst of these fires, it says, maybe I should turn to it and read it so you get a picture of this clearly. So I'm going to turn to Isaiah 24 just to end with this in Isaiah 24. Isaiah chapter 24. So this is God's judgment upon the world system in the last days that is described by a powerful earthquake. And I'll just point out a few verses in it that make this clear. It says, The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, and broken the everlasting covenant. They transgressed the laws of God. Sexual perversion and so on, instead of marriage. That's the laws of God. They've broken the everlasting covenant. So there's a curse devouring the earth. And then on top of it, so there, it does describe famine here as well. But it describes this great earthquake. And when this earthquake takes place, this is what it says will happen. They shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. Wherefore glorify ye the Lord in the fires even the name of the Lord of Israel in the isles of the sea. So in the midst of this great destruction, the bride of Christ is in such a unity of love for God and love for one another that the glory of God hovers over their congregation and protects them from the destruction so that they praise God in the midst of the destruction. Kind of almost like Daniel, Shadrach and Abednego, Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace. They come forth unscathed, untouched. And the Lord returns for his bride on the Mount of Olives. May we be those that endure all things, even if they take away our right to buy and sell. May we be those in such a relationship with him and coming forth to be his bride in these last days that conquers all things, that conquers our community, that conquers our nations for the glory of God. As it says in God's word, that we are to give him no rest till he makes Jerusalem a praise in all the earth. That means the Jerusalem in our own community first in our own city or town first, which will accumulate in the Lord's Jerusalem in Israel, coming down in his glory to rule upon the earth. Can we be those that will rise up and be strong as soldiers to the occasion and say, yes, I will pay the price to be hidden in a relationship with God? Yes, I will stand at the gap and be misunderstood to see the bride of Christ come forth. Yes, I will seek him instead of my own well-being. I will put him first in priority for before my job. I'd rather have a lower-paying job or be in position of trusting him than trusting in the wealth of this world. Brothers and sisters, this message is a cry of the Spirit of God to the body of Christ to come forth. He wants cities of refuge where we can bring others into the kingdom of God because they see 
Within a city, a city set upon a hill. Within a town, a town set upon a hill. Within a community, a community set upon the hill where the glory of God shines and hovers over it. Because we have again become his house of prayer. We have again become those that worship him in spirit and in truth. We have become his bride where his full headship resides in our midst because we've returned to the genuine fear of God, to genuine repentance. I'm tired of all the counterfeit revivals and counterfeit conversions and counterfeit ministries. I want to see the glory of God. May we all travail for that. Thank you for listening to this message. I look forward to continuing to share the Word of God.